I really thought for this show of all shows, the John Banks banjo solo would have a little tint of Christmas music. What happened there, John? Ah, uh, Tom, I don't know. Those banjo players sounded like they were on uh, drinking quite a bit of eggnog. I'm a little <laughs> bit worried about them. <laughs> well, we're not yet, thankfully. And welcome again, folks, to the next episode of the Antietam and Beyond podcast. I'm Tom McMillan with my co-host, the aforementioned John Banks. And we have a little bit of a change of pace for you tonight. First couple of episodes, we've had some really heavyweight uh, Civil War authors with us. We'll continue to do that. We'll continue to have battlefield guys and other, guys and other experts. But tonight, we're going to take a little change of pace into the area of relic hunting. Two fascinating guests uh, one of whom the John Banks calls the Babe Ruth of storytelling. So we're going to get to them in just a minute, but we always have a little bit of an oddball segment to start, and then it'll be, I'll turn it over to John Banks for that, our favorite oddball, because uh, he was recently at the Franklin Civil War show uh, down there where he, where he lives in Tennessee, calls it the Super Bowl of Civil War shows. I embrace being called an oddball, by the way. <laughs> I think that's great. Yeah, Tom, I was at the Franklin Civil War show, the Civil, the, the, the Super Bowl of Civil War shows. And it was not this past Saturday, but the previous Saturday. And I went there with the intention of bringing home a 100-pound artillery shell. Mrs. B was not home. She was in Arizona. And I thought I could sneak it by her when she came home. I would put it behind the plant here in my home office. I didn't get that. I didn't have the courage to do that. I ended up buying a uh, uh, nice soldier picture, really nice addition to my collection. But these Civil War shows, Tom, are not just Civil War stuff. And while I was there, I kid you not, I saw hand grenades for sale for 25 bucks a pop. They were not Civil War hand grenades. They, they look like U.S. Army hand grenades from the 20th century. Apparently, apparently deactivated. Uh, I didn't have the courage to bring one of those home either. And I also saw there a, a stuffed brown bear upright, <laughs> fangs bared. And I talked to the gentleman who owned it. He was from Idaho, a super interesting guy. And he said I could take it home for, for only the, the princely sum of $5,000. I didn't have the courage to bring that home either, Tom. I didn't have the, the room to fit it in uh, our vehicle. So there is not a $5,000 brown bear here at Banks Manor in Nashville. But boy, oh boy, that place was super, super interesting. And, and thus you have the reason why John Banks remains happily married. <laughs> well, well, decision. well, good decision, John. Well, there tonight's show, we'll uh, ease into this with our relic cunning and two really tremendous guests. Uh, John Davidson has been attacking the hobby for years. Richard Clem has been attacking the hobby for decades. Richard's been around long enough that his grandmother actually knew Civil War soldiers, and we'll ease into that a little bit as well. But but guys, welcome. I know you're both from Washington County, Maryland, near the Antietam Battlefield. And let's just start, because I don't know a lot about this, this hobby. John Banks knows a lot more than I do. Just give our listeners to start, uh, warm us up, some of the items, some of the things that you have found over the years. Yeah, first, I just wanted to say uh, thanks for having me on. This is a, a twofold honor for me to be on with you guys and to be next to my my good friend, Richard. Um, these days, I feel like I'm just out there cleaning up the leftovers that people like Richard left behind for me. Uh, lots of bullets are still out there to be found. Um, if you're lucky, you might come across a few Civil War buttons, 
uh, Eagle buttons. Uh, most of the buttons that I've found are, are union related. I found a few Confederate buttons here and there. Um, and these days you don't have as many of those big sig signature finds, but I have found a few accoutrement plates, a couple of breastplates, U.S. box plates, and uh, probably the the highlight, the, the find that I got most excited about was an Eagle sword belt plate, uh, just in fantastic condition that came from an encampment of General John Buford's uh, cal cavalry after Gettysburg. And Richard? Well, you'd mentioned my grandmother who actually started me, her interest in the Civil War. She, uh, she actually knew people, families that lived through the Battle of Antietam. And on a Sunday afternoon, I was a kid about eight years old. We'd take a trip down, go through the battlefield. That was our idea of a wild time. And one of John Banks' favorite stories, grandmother, she called me Dickie. And she would say, Dickie, Einie Swain lived over there in that old stone house. And she would tell me, she said there were wounded soldiers in her barn from Massachusetts. And I didn't even know what Civil War was. But she planted a seed in me that's still in there today, the interest and some of the stories she would tell. And one thing led to another. And as I got older, I the interest just didn't go away. And I can remember, like I said, my brother and I, we probably were teenagers. We started eyeballing for bullets on the Antietam battlefield right after a hard rain. I remember one evening right behind the Dunker Church. Now, this is just before the Park Service purchased everything. Everything was private owned. I picked up 18 bullets laying right behind the Dunker Church. And uh, I don't mean to brag, but over the period of 50 years, brother and I accumulated around 30,000 bullets. Not counting belt buckles and buttons, coins, and uh, stuff that just laying everywhere. And, uh, of course, like I said, this was long before the Park Service uh, owned anything. They, we always got permission. It was all private owned. And we've spent many, uh, actually years, on the battlefield eyeballing. And then the detectors came out. And then uh, it was just another story. Now, of course, John and Richard, relic hunting on National Park Service property is illegal, right? Yeah, strictly forbidden. And uh, I noticed in when you advertised the podcast, John, there were a couple of comments where it seemed to be a little bit of confusion about that. Uh, so certainly we're not going on to protected battlefield property to relic hunt. Uh, the fact of the matter is, where we live in Washington County, we're, we're very lucky. Uh, the Civil War, Richard and I have talked about it, probably touched just about every field, valley, and hill in the county over the course of the war. Um, so we have history all around us here where we live. Um, from 1861, I've got to hunt some river guard camps where the Union was looking at certain crossing routes. And then, of course, we're familiar with the, the key events of 1862, South Mountain, Antietam, but there's so much activity that surrounds those events, from soldier movements and marching to encampments, uh, different skirmishes. And then a lot of folks aren't familiar with 1863 activity in Washington County, but uh, in the aftermath of Gettysburg, there was just significant uh, activity back through Washington County as the, the Confederate Army retreated. Uh, they were trapped by the flooded Potomac. And that set things up for almost another large battle, which didn't happen, obviously. But a lot of what we we find here in Washington County is actually related to post-Gettysburg uh, activity. So a lot of that activity is well beyond the boundaries of Park Service property 
across private property. So we're getting permission to search these various locations that have those kind of activities. Now I want to dig into a little bit to specifically what both of you have found. And Tom, I talked to Richard on some of my walks here in Nashville. I call him up and we kind of shoot the breeze. But the other day he related a story to me about uh, Richard has found four ID discs. And during the Civil War, dog tags were, were, were not issued. Richard has found four of them, which is the equivalent, as far as I'm concerned, of getting struck by lightning four times. So, Richard, this is an Antietam-related story. Why don't you tell our listeners about the story that you told me the other day? Okay, John. Um, I'll make it short due to our time. Um, October the 18th, 1985, I was detecting a site, post-Gettysburg site, just south of Hagerstown. And I unearthed my second ID tag. It's a brass disc about the size of a quarter, gold-plated. It was stamped uh, J.S. Thompson, stood for John Stephen Thompson, 3rd Vermont, and his hometown on there, Glover, Vermont. So I did extensive research, um, come to point that I felt, I felt like John Thompson was almost like a friend of mine. I come to know him. And uh, after years and years of research and contacting family, relatives, and things of like that from the West Coast, through my articles, I've wrote, written over 120 articles on the Civil War and uh, Washington Times, local magazines, Gettysburg Magazine. And uh, I'd say approximately two years ago, I got an email from a soldier stationed in Italy, uh, Chris Delu. His mother-in-law was a direct descendant, a great-great-granddaughter of Captain Thompson. She lived in Texas, Jesse Krugel. And uh, he, he came to my house and brought his son, Trent, who was a four great, 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 great grandson of Captain Thompson, John S. Thompson. So I guess it was maybe about two weeks ago they came to visit and I gave the tag back to Trent and all the material photographs and everything that I had. I thought the right thing to do to keep it in the family. And I was telling John, I says, the whole time we sat at our table in the dining room, that tag never left that boy's hand. He squeezed it for almost three hours and wouldn't even lay it down. So I knew it. He may not know exactly everything about it, but he knew that has some significance to his great, great, great grandfather on back. And John Thompson was wounded at Bloody Lane. Is that right, Richard? Yeah, John Thompson was shot in the back at Bloody Lane. Uh, it wasn't a fatal wound near the shoulder blade. Richard and, and Richard and John, both of you, I know. And and I, I think, uh, John, you were talking earlier about the 1863 activity, but also just a reminder to folks that the Union Army stayed in the Antietam Sharpsburg area for many weeks after the battle and spread out and had headquarters. And as they figured out, this is also part of McClellan was slow chasing after Robert E. Lee that people have heard that story. So there were many places that are not the battlefield where there would have been residue, certainly, for lack of a better word, of, of soldiers, of soldiers being there. Did you did you specifically because we know where some of those camps were, where some of those headquarters are. We know where Burnside's headquarters were, et cetera, et cetera. Did you specific, do you specifically target those types of private areas or do you just kind of stumble onto things? 
Yeah, I mean, there's a certain amount of, of targeting. Um, you can find out pretty easily where some of these large encampments were. Uh, the hard part is getting permission, um, which is not all that easy uh, around the Antietam area. Um, many of the farmers, you know, have experienced this already. Sometimes the experiences aren't always great. You might have somebody that is not so kosher in how they approach the hobby. Um, and then they don't have folks back, unfortunately. So uh, I think that's few and far between. There, there are a few folks like that, um, but the vast majority are good folks in the hobby. But it, it makes it harder as the years go by to have access to, to places like that. Uh, most of the spots that I have access to are actually people that I either know, uh, family, friends, or people that are friends of friends that helps to facilitate access to, to certain really good spots like that. Now, now John, I know you have a, you found a, a lot of stuff. And when I get back to Western Maryland, you have to promise that I can come over and see some of that stuff because I'm fascinated by what you do. What is your story of the, the 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 big fish that you've caught dug out of the ground? Tell us that. Yeah, you know, I don't have nearly as many signature finds of this guy sitting beside me here. It, it kind of makes me feel small in this world, but um I mentioned the, the eagle sword belt plate. That was easily the most excited I've ever been. And I remember letting out a couple of screams and my dad popped up over the hill and I guess wondered if, if I was okay mentally and physically. Uh, but that was just the excitement of seeing that laying right there in the dirt. Uh, that was my second uh, plate that I had found at that time. So that's up high on the list for me. Uh, right behind that, I have my relic room right behind me here. You guys can maybe get a glimpse of it, but uh, Richard and I were just looking at a, a soldier's cross uh, with a figure of Jesus on that cross, which was a necklace. And right beside it within like a, a foot on either side, I found two gilted, perfect New York buttons. Um, so that is special to me. And I think that comes from one of the camps that, that Tom mentioned. It would have been a probably a six core camp after Antietam, where that relic, those relics came from. Beyond that, I, I do want to tell a really cool story that is in line with some of the cool finds that Richard had, but it's a find that my dad made if if I have time to do that. Absolutely. So this find has connection directly to Antietam. And it, again, it was a post-Antietam camp of one of the cores outside of Sharpsburg. Uh, at this time, I was in college and my dad was continuing to metal detect to my dismay. Uh, I was just busy and I, I was on the baseball team and just didn't have time to continue. Um, and dad got in contact with me. He had found something really cool. And now he always has a knack of just finding that one thing that you would trade your entire pouch for. Uh, and this one thing was a pewter name stamp that had small block letters still in the groove of the stamp. Um, I've never seen any of these found elsewhere that actually still contained the letters, but at the end of it, there was a set screw that was frozen in, in place. So it, it kept the letters and the letters read Isaac A. Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. So the next step, as Richard knows, you have to find out about this soldier. You know, the excitement just builds and you want to know more. And we found that there were about five Isaac A. Wrights in the Union Army, but based on where he found it, uh, we were able to whittle this down to the uh, Isaac A. Wright from the 104th New York Infantry. 
So the next question, if that wasn't already cool enough, is where did he fight on the Antietam battlefield? And this is where it gets really cool. The 104th New York Infantry fought very close to, or if not within the bloody cornfield. So if you turn on to uh, Dunker Church Road and then hang a left on Cornfield Avenue, drift down over the hill, the first monument on the left is the 104th New York Infantry. Uh, so that's a find that I, I don't think we're ever going to top. And it is in the realm of Richard Clemism. That's amazing. Hey, uh, full disclosure, I am not a relic hunter. I had a, I had a uh, metal detector back in the day. I used it one time and I found one bullet uh, over in Paul Culler's uh, cornfield, who, who owned the Miller's cornfield at the time, back in the early 80s. So I know this. First of all, Tom, Richard has hung up his detector uh, several years ago. He no longer detects. I was hoping that you guys, for the listeners out there who are complete novices, Richard hunted with a detector back in the day that doesn't didn't have the capabilities that you're hunting with now, right, John? So why don't you two explain to, to us what the tools of the trade are? What did Richard use back in the day? And John, what do you use today? Well, to start off with, um, my brother and I, we went together and bought a detector after several years of just eyeballing the battlefield Antietam. And I met a man down there one day. He, uh, my brother didn't go along that day. He was sick or something. So I was going to go down and eyeball by myself. So as the man pulled up behind me, I was just getting started, named John Burns. I don't think there's any connection to the famous John Burns of Gettysburg. But he said, buddy, he said, would you mind if we'll walk along with you? I said, well, sure. Good to have the company. So he went back in the trunk of his car and he pulled out this uh, metal detector. First time I ever saw one. He takes that detector and goes from the East Woods out across the cornfield through a cattle path. The grass was up about your knees. He could only put the head of that detector down on that path, cattle path. He walked out and turned around, come right straight back from the path, and he must have 50 or 60 bullets and a gold-plated button. So when I got home, I gave my brother a phone call. I said, we got to get a detector. <laughs> so we bought one on the halves. We were making that kind of money. But when he took that detector down to the Antietam battlefield, they called it a tube type, Fisher, Fisher M-scope, a tube type, one of the first that came out. And uh, we advanced on up to the Whites, Whites Electronics, who probably makes one of the best detectors ever made. And I'll make this short. Uh, after we thought we cleaned up Washington County, then we each got a Whites detector. We went into Berryville, Virginia, Clark County, Virginia, West Virginia, Jefferson County. And I can remember many a day digging as many as 250 bullets in an afternoon. And uh, of course, along with that comes your belt box buckles, your breastplates, your cartridge box plates, knapsack hooks. And uh, much like I said, uh, I feel sorry for these rangers that never metal detected. Um, in my opinion, if God ever created a more interesting hobby, he must have kept it for himself. And John, tell us about what you're using today yeah, so and, 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 how been, it, and how it compares to what Richard used. Yeah, I've been at this off and on for a couple of decades. And I started with the whites machines that, that Richard just mentioned. And we were finding some things then, but um, 
these days, if you really want to still find, you know, a half decent pocket full of relics, uh, you need to have advanced technology that either goes deeper or discriminates among the iron and, and trash that's out there. Uh, otherwise, all the, the stuff on the surface that Richard had access to a long time ago, most of that has already been found. Uh, so I'm using uh, the primary machine that I use is a GPX 4500 made, made by a company called MineLab, which I believe is the same company that, you know, developed technology to find mines in, in different places of war. Um, so I use that for really deep finds. And, and actually, it was just this past weekend, I dug a bayonet scabbard tip that was 17 inches deep. And I posted a picture of that deep hole on my blog that I share my my stories and pictures of my relics. What is your blog called, John? Tell tell the listeners. Yeah, it's called JWD Relic Recovery. And it's just a, a neat way for me to bring my collection out of my basement and to share it with others. So I'm not the only person looking at it. And I just add, you know, little stories and historical anecdotes um, for the, the bayonet scabbard tip uh, post. I found a, a picture from the Library of Congress to demonstrate, you know, what this actual tip actually is. It's uh, a decorative tip that would have been on the end of a sheath uh, that the soldier would have kept his his bayonet in. But a lot of people might not, you know, be familiar with that. So I, I try to share a little bit of extra information through my blog with with folks that uh, might not know about it otherwise. And for listeners, that's on Facebook. Check that out on Facebook and Instagram. And Instagram, of course, yes. Hey guys, the question that I, when I do some volunteering or ambassador at Antietam or when I'm walking Gettysburg or wherever, you have two, two really common questions. Have you ever seen a ghost? And have you ever found a bullet? My answer to both is no. I don't think there are ghosts out there. I know there are still bullets out there, but can you talk, you, you touched on a little bit, talk about the thrill that you guys feel even even you, Richard, have found so many things that when you when you find this little piece of history attached to a guy who you may be able to identify him or 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 not, and I'm assuming that's the driving force behind what you do. Yes, I would um, like to comment that the favorite uh, relic in my collection is a small silver badge I discovered near Jones's Crossroads. It's, you could cover it with a postage stamp. It's a solid silver, shaped, shaped like a shield. It's engraved, Consider H. Willett. Sergeant Consider H. Willett. His first name was Consider. His middle initial H stood for Heath. It was engraved 44th New York State Volunteers. Um, I've been told that badge and the material I have, I have seven different photographs of Captain Willett. Could sell as high as ten thousand dollars, but uh, money don't enter the picture. In the regimental history, it lists Captain Willett serving at Gettysburg. This was lost after the, during the Gettysburg retreat. He actually saved the lives of ninety-seven enemy soldiers on Little Round Top at Gettysburg. It's all recorded in the regimental history. The story was Captain Rice of the forty-fourth New York saw. These Confederate soldiers, mostly from Texas, storming the heights of Little Round Top. They were getting shot in their back by their own men, friendly fire. They were barefooted. They were starving. They was out of ammunition. Captain Rice says, this isn't war. This is murder. 
said they need a volunteer to gather these men up, get them out of harm's way. Said the first to scale the stone breastworks was Captain Willett of the 44th New York. They had three or four or more eyewitnesses where he went down and rounded these men up. He said, I'm taking you as a prisoner, but I'm saving your life. And he went up over the back over the summit of a little round top to these men carrying a musket that may have even been empty for all we know. And there were actually three, four different eyewitnesses. He saved the lives of 97 men. And to think that I found his silver badge, it's just, uh, it's hard to explain the feeling that when you feel something, I do the research and uh, he survived the war. Uh, he, he, he was put ahead of a black regiment, a second colored regiment in Florida, got yellow fever. After the war, he uh, re retired in Chicago and became a lawyer, an attorney in Chicago, raised eight kids. And um, I always figured with eight children, he, there should be some relatives around. So what I done, I went to the library and got a name of um, Willits. And I found out there were Willits living in Louisville, Kentucky. So I made a phone call to a Max Willett. He put me in touch with two of the granddaughters of Captain Willett, not great-great-granddaughters, granddaughters of Captain Willett. They were both in their 90s. And they were, that's rare to find a granddaughter still alive. And they sent me photographs of him in his business suit when he enlisted in the army, pictures I could never got from any archives. And uh, when you find something like that and uh, you put it all together, it's just so rewarding. You, you feel blessed. I mean, it's not everybody to find something like that. And Richard, you found that within a mile of your house in Washington yeah, County, probably, right? Probably within a mile of where I live today. And it was at, at what they call Jones's Crossroads, just Lappin's Crossroads today, about halfway between Hagerstown and Sharpsburg. And that campsite, they were, they, the Third Corps and the Fifth Corps both camped on that same ground after Gettysburg. And I can remember crossing a fence. We looked for this campsite for three or four years. We hunted off and on till finally one day I stepped across the fence and I could actually see bullets and buttons laying on top of the ground, on top of the plowed field. And I can't remember exactly, it had to be thousands of bullets, knapsack hooks, belt buckles. We got three ID'd items out of the same campsite. My brother dug a bullet out of that campsite, a standard 58 caliber bullet, had the nose carved off of it, left a surface about the size of an aspirin. And on there was uh, carved WLG, stood for William L. Garner. Around the bottom had 114 Pennsylvania, which was Collis Zuavs. All of that was on a bullet. And there again, we searched that, researched it. Till, uh, he was survived Gettysburg, um, William L. Gardner. And record shows he uh, he passed away in a Santa Salem in New York. Uh, he was wounded in the in the ankle just two days before Lee's surrender at the Appomattox Courthouse. But when you, I'd like to say, I've been fortunate, very fortunate, blessed to have found four of these uh, so ID tags. And uh, I've had, I took John, John Banks, to one of them where the, my last tag I found near the battlefield of Antietam, uh, William Secor. And uh, that's another story we'll finish. We'll we get to, to that. Another, we'll get to that. That's my favorite story. That's my favorite story. John, when you're pulling something out of the ground, like, do, do you get goosebumps? Do you? 
do you, what happens? What, what, cause I would be, if I found one bullet, one. Yeah. And Tom too. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, yeah, it's, and it, you found thousands. Really yeah. The first bullet, you know, when I was a teenager, it just, it hooks you. Uh, if you, if you're not hooked by that, being able to touch an item that the last person that touched it uh, was, uh, you know, a, a soldier 160 years ago, it's really special. Uh, and it, it sticks with you. And that's, it never gets old to, to dig Civil War bullets or, or any type of relic. Tom, I think we need to mention our sponsor, don't we? I think we do, John. I think we do think you mentioned Civil War Trails. I think I'm on right now. Uh, this podca podcast is brought to you by Civil War Trails, the world's largest open-air museum, offering 1,500 sites across six states, including over two dozen stops along their Antietam driving trail. Request a brochure from them and begin planning your trip at Civil War trails.org and if you see a sign a civil war trail sign what should they do tom take a sign selfie hashtag sign selfie and put that on social media i love the sign selfies hey one of the things i wanted to get to is uh before we get to another one of richard's stories is relic hunting is a polarizing hobby okay there's a segment of, of people out there, archaeologists, other people in the Civil War community who don't like what relic hunting, they, they don't like it at all. And there are others who are uh, participate in the hobby who, who, who are not, who may go on private property, they're at the other far end of the spectrum. Could, could both of you, John first, speak to, uh, speak to that and, and, and give us your viewpoint? Yeah, we talked a little bit before about where relic hunting is happening. It certainly is happening under legal terms, you know, with permission uh, and 90 some percent of the time. Um, I think there's also some other ethics that follow along with that. I mean, you're being given permission to access somebody's property and to dig holes and to find relics that, you know, we keep some of them. But there are other courtesies that follow along with that. Um for example, I always make sure that the landowners know I'm going to be there. And that's as simple as texts, emails, or phone calls. Um, that's not the case in every property, but I think it's common courtesy to let, let them know and make sure it's okay each time, even if that's dozens of times. Uh, the other thing that, that I always do, and I know Richard has done this also, is to share some of what you find with uh, the, the folks that have given you that permission. So, um I don't think there's any circumstance where I kept everything for myself. I've always made up cases of relics to give to the landowners as a thank you for, for that privilege. Um, beyond that, you know, I think, and, and this starts to get into to each your own categories, I think, but I like to make sure that I carry along the historical integrity of the things that I find and to tell a little bit about the things that I find on my blog to share beyond just keeping these things stocked in my basement. Um, so for the historical integrity side, I, you know, behind me here, I have cases that are labeled as to where those relics were found. Uh, and some of the most important cases, I actually have little thumb drives where I've recorded um, information from diaries, excerpts from books that match up with that history. 
Um, so there's different approaches to it, but that, that's kind of how I've approached it over the years because I enjoy the history uh, and kind of the hunt after the hunt. Some of the things that Richard has talked about, uh, it doesn't end, you know, in the relic fields. You get to come home and learn more about what you've found. Sometimes it's as cool as what Richard just talked about where you've learned the entire story of a soldier. And then other times you're just learning, you know, these little details that, that follow bullets and buttons uh, when they were produced and when they were used during the war. Um, and a lot of other cool, cool things that you can, can learn from relics. But what do you say to the archaeologist who says, now we can't interpret what you pulled from the ground, Richard or, 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 or John? Well, John, uh, as far as the archaeologist, there was a, one that wrote a reply to one of my articles one time about destroying the evidence. Uh, John here can tell you right now, if you can find a button, it's going to be pretty well destroyed, deteriorated from the elements of nature. Unless you get a belt buckle or something heavier brass, it's pretty well going. And uh, another person, I can't remember his name, applied to this, made a comment about my story. And he said, let's take an example. He said, Richard Clem, he's found four ID tags. He has connected families with these ID tags from New York, Vermont, to California, Oregon, state of Washington, have come to my home. I've actually brought families together, relatives they didn't even know they had through those ID tags. And if that's a bad thing, I'm sorry. But... Uh, I don't regret one moment I ever spent in the field. Yeah, as I can tell, I, I was wondering going into this, because John knows you so much better than, than I did coming into it. Uh, you're not just relic hunters. You're also historians. I can tell you know a lot about the Civil War, a lot about the battle. Does one precede the other, and does one feed off the other? Yeah, for me, uh, it's a little bit of both. But when I find a particular relic, it then drives me to learn more. And then often I end up learning more about the history of that particular location or that particular encampment, uh, the regiments that were likely to camp there. And it kind of drives me to learn more uh, after I get home from the relic field. So I think a little bit more so for me, it's the relic and then learn. it drives me to learn more about that history. Richard? I, I think he pretty well summed it up. But um... I, I'll share this with you. I'll make this brief. He's talking about this is good Antietam. Years ago, I was doing research on a relic of some sort. I can't remember what it was. It was a minister of the Church of the Brethren, Austin Cooper. He was 90 years old. He lived in Brunswick. He's Mr. Clement, I'll tell you, he said, this is a true story. He said, um, one day I was up in the tower at Antietam. He's I was a younger man. And then the boys down there just picking up relics right and left off the ground back in the probably in the 30s maybe and he said they come up and said mister would you want to buy some relics and he said what do you got boys he said they held their hands out bullets he said they had an id tag they didn't know what it was they thought it was a coin had a small hole in it he said i'll give you a quarter for it so he bought it and he said it had um caleb michael he said i remember looking the name caleb michael fifth maryland union so he took it home threw it in the drawer forgot about it Years later, he said he was he was actually preaching at the Dunker Church after the of course after the Antietam. And he says um, the depression hit, the Great Depression. He said, so there was no money in preaching, how to get a job. 
I got a job. He's down in Baltimore delivering coal. He said, one day I was shoveling coal off the back of a truck down into the basement. And this uh, drunk came down the street. He said, for another name, an alcoholic. He had a Civil War sword. He said, Mr. Ace, I need a drink. Would you give me a couple bucks for the sword? He said, I gave him $2 for it. Throwed it up in the front seat of the truck, finished delivering the coal, went on home. He said, that night, when I got the sword, said, pulled it out of the scabbard. Right under the hilt, there was a name, Caleb Michael, 5th Maryland Union. And he said, I got to thinking, that, that name sounds familiar. He said, so I went in and pulled the ID tag out. I'd bought maybe 20, 30 years earlier. And sure enough, it belonged to the same man. Now, what, what are the odds of that? That's an amazing story. Tom, I'm going to tell you something. I've known Richard since 2012. When we lived in Connecticut, went down to uh, for the uh, anniversary of the, the battle, 150th anniversary, I believe it was. So over the past 11 years, almost every time I go to Antietam, which many, many times, Richard and I usually find time to ride around the battlefield. And that's uh, a thrill for me because I'm going around with the master, the, the Babe Ruth of storytellers. It, it's a huge, huge thrill for me. And over the years, you know, we're driving up to the Pry House, uh, and Richard would point off to the field and say, yeah, my brother and I found X there. Or we'd go down the Smoketown Road, which is which is a gem of a spot on the battlefield. I love Smoketown Road. And Richard would say, yeah, back in the day behind that wall, I found X. I love hearing this stuff. It's awesome. But one of my favorite stories with Richard is the Otho J. Smith Farm a little bit out of the way. It's on Mansfield Road. Do I have that right, Richard? Yeah, Mansfield. Off, Mans off Mansfield Road. And, and our listeners may know it because Alexander Gardner took a series of images there of uh, what was a U.S. Army division hospital in the aftermath of the Battle of Antietam. And one of real, uh, Richard's epic finds is, is on that farm. And again, with permission. So Richard, why don't you tell us that story for our listeners it's really a good one john I, if i remember it was in um, october um three of my four id tags came in october it was a good month for id tags and the afternoon i was getting ready to get my gear ready my brother was coming to pick me up in the pickup truck it was a beautiful indian summer afternoon and you can call it a coincidence or whatever you want to call it i heard this voice or I knew I was to take a camera. I was going to find an ID tag that day. I can't say where it came from. So I took the camera and I got in the truck with my brother. He said, what do you got? I said, a camera. He said, what for? I said, I'm going to find an ID tag today. And I wanted to get a picture of it in the field. In 50 years of metal detecting, I never took a camera. He said, throw that in the glove box. We're wasting time. So we go down the battlefield and drive back to uh, Mansfield Road. All we had... All we had we had permission to metal detect. I get out of the pickup truck. I'd say less than 15 minutes. My very first I'd, my very first find of the afternoon was an ID tag, about size of a quarter, with an eagle on one side, gold plated, the back was stamped. Corporal William Secor, S-E-C-O-R, Second Vermont, had his hometown on there of Half Moon, New York. So as John says right away, 
who was Corporal Secor. You got us researches. So I find the location was, as John Banks said there, Gardner took a picture there of the O.J. Smith farm, the barn, thatch-proof barn, was used for the second corps of the wounded from Bloody Lane. Although C Corps was in the sixth corps, he was taken to that hospital, that barn. And on the hillside from that barn, it was covered with cedar trees where I found the ID tag. And I always thought had the idea when he died, he was the only soldier in his regiment killed at Antietam, C Corps, 2nd Vermont. And the hillside that I dug it from, I'm assuming he was buried there. And when they removed the body, the records show his father came down from Vermont, removed the body, and took it back, buried it in Vermont. And I figured that tag was in his pocket. They were sold like two for a quarter. The idea was it was more patriotic than ID, but it served perfect for an ID tag. Uh, the idea was you carried one, you sent one home to your wife or your sweetheart. So I did research. I wrote an article about it. I got a phone call one day from a lady in California, San Dimas, California. And uh, I'm, when I'm getting ahead of myself, I sent a request to the Vermont Historical Society for photographs of Secor. They had three that they had received in 1955. I paid $97 to have these three photographs reproduced. When they sent them to me, there was a letter that came with them explaining how a Mr. Farnsworth had donated these three photographs and another ID tag identical to the one that I'd found in 1955. He said, I'm an old man, I'm going blind, and I want to do the right thing and give these relics to the state for which my nephew gave his life for, William Secor. So my wife, she says, he, had, he put his return address William Farnsworth, San Dimas, California. She said, won't you write a letter out there? I said, well, this old man's, this is 15 years ago. He's going blind. He's probably dead. So I sent a letter to occupant of the address. Forgot about him, sent it. Two months later, I got a phone call from a Jean Putnam. She said, Mr. Klein, why are you searching for information on my father, William Farnsworth? I said, Mrs. Farns, or Mrs. Putnam, I said, not so much on your father. I says, did the name Secor ring a bell in your family tree? She says, yes, it does. She said, we had a great, great uncle who was killed at a place near called Sharpsburg. And so I told her I had a tag. I found a tag and I sent her pictures of it and copies of it and all the photographs I had. And so several weeks later, I get this registered letter in the mail. And she said, Mr. Clem, after I got to talking to you, my father died. He was totally blind in 1956, 57. He was staying with me at the time, me and my husband, and he was totally blind. And she said, I never had a chance to go through his personal papers. So she said, while I was going through his personal papers, I found this letter that you might be interested in. It was a letter sent from Hagerstown, Maryland, dated September the 28th, 1862, from Secor's commanding officer. And it says, it was to his father. He said, dear sir, it brings me grief to inform you the death of your one son, William Secor, 2nd Vermont. He was carrying the collars of his regiment at the time of death. We found in his knapsack a Bible that has been used hard. And we thought, 
His, he had many friends in his regiment. He died and we buried him on the O.J. Smith farm, right where I found that ID tag. So in my opinion, only God knows how many more bodies are still on that hillside where he was buried. I bet my life there's still bodies on that hillside that'll never be removed. So that's my story of William Secor. It's an amazing story. And Tom, every time I go to Antietam, almost every time, Richard and I stop there. I, I never get tired of hearing that story. Never get tired of it. Richard, that is why you're the Babe Ruth of storytellers. I guess so. <laughs> Indeed. And John may be Lou Gehrig. We may, yeah. we may have to dub John Lou Gehrig. I was just going to say, after that story, I don't know if I have anything else to contribute to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys, let me ask you this. If there's a teenager out there listening, saying this sounds interesting, or maybe we thought it was already interesting, is there a future for this? Is there is there stuff still out there? Uh, I know, John, you hope you hope there is for a while at least. But it, I mean, it, it, as Richard was talking, a lot of these things are, or some of the items are deteriorating. Is this a hobby that's going to continue, or is it going to fade away just because with with the passage of time? I feel like just when you think it might be fading away, that there's some new technology or, or something that uh, puts it back in, into play. Um, people have been saying this for several decades that oh, there's nothing left out there, and and then the next generation proves proves them wrong. Yeah, just about every time I go out, I at least find a, a bullet or two. So there's definitely hope uh, for the next generation if they're interested. Uh, there's different levels of technology that can help you get into this and start looking just for coins uh, as a way to to learn the detector and get better. So yeah, I think it's going to keep on going. Richard. That kind of reminds me of the story of uh, Steve Silva, who edits the North-South Trader magazine, uh, magazine strictly for relic hunters. Steve got an email one day from some guy who said, uh, Steve, he says, I got this idea that 75% of all Civil War relics have been found with metal detectors. And Steve answered him back, I'll never forget. He said, if you know that for a fact, then you have to know where the other 25% is at which would make sense. So I, when I was thinking back in the old days right after the Battle of Antietam, they would plow with horses and single shovel plow. They could plow 12, 12 to 14 inches deep. Most of that stuff was on the surface, was plowed down as, as much as 14 inches down. And I knew my detector would only, I could pick up a bullet maybe five or six inches and that would be stretching it. So I knew there was stuff below that. And with John, his generation coming on, he's going to even go on deeper yet. But who knows how much stuff is still down there. Small stuff even, like coins and stuff that you can't really maybe not detect as well as like a belt buckle or something like that. So I remember this John Burns I referred to earlier on the battlefield. He told me before he left down there, he said, boys, I want to tell you something. He said, you'll never get them all. And I believe that. I've got my share of them. <laughs> Richard has a habit, Tom, since I've known him, he, he's always looking at the ground and I'm always wondering, what are you doing? I think it's out of habit. So anyway, it's great. Well, guys, this has been great. Uh, I mean, we can't uh, thank you enough for for your expertise, sharing those stories, some amazing stories. Those personal stories were, were things that I really didn't expect, but I can see 
I found things in different ways that you want to research this individual soldier or that individual soldier, guy who wasn't necessarily a hero, wasn't a hero at all, other than he served in the army and then went, and then went back to his to his regular life. But it, it personalized these guys. And that that's what you've uh, that's what you've done for me. I, I think I, I come to appreciate what you do even more because of that. It's, it's something that I, as one who's on definitely on the outside of this hobby, hadn't realized. So I really appreciate uh, what you've done, what you've shared with us. Yes, thank you, John slash Lou Gehrig and Richard slash Babe Ruth. This has been terrific. And, and Tom, I, I think you you know what time it is, right? I think it is uh, it is very close to banjo time. We need to go to those banjo players who are, I think they're drinking eggnog today too, Tom. Let's go Here to the banjo. Here we go. Let's go to the banjos. Mm -hmm.